tried to speak his own recollections of what he shared with me over the years about the various experiences that you will read about in there and um, even the spiritual perspective in there is what he communicated to me so I tried to write it from his point of view as much as I could so that if basically you want a snapshot of his whole life I would encourage you to read this last sketch. I'm not going to read the entire booklet at this time although I will make references to some of the things within it. But what I want to share with you is the basis of Dad's hope and ours, and I want to focus on a specific scripture that was in his top ten or five or one of his favorites. I don't know if there was one favorite scripture, so, but I tried to choose one that definitely I knew was for sure one of his favorite scriptures. And this is also scripture that I read to him the last time I saw him, which was six days before he passed away. Um, I spent uh, time with Dad uh, over the last few years. I tried to, I live in California now, I tried to get here at least every three months to visit with him. And those were very wonderful times for me because uh, the Lord did extend his life beyond what we had expected. And so it was very uh, wonderful to be able to spend those extra couple of years with him that we did not expect to have. So I'm reading now from... Romans chapter 8, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm going to start with verse 15, but this is a chapter of scripture that is one of the most jubilant and triumphant, wonderful exaltations of God's grace in Christ that exists in the Bible. And so much so, it's one of those passages where if you examine it carefully, all 39 verses, there is not one reference to the wicked, God's wrath on the wicked, or any of those otherwise biblical realities. The entire chapter is about God and his grace and love for his own. And everything stated there is about the people of God and God's love for them in adopting them. And the you in this passage is very important because the you is the people of God, those who are Christ's, who belong to him, whom he has adopted into his family in his eternal plan. And in verse 1, it states there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the theme of the whole passage, that we are free of condemnation forever and ever, based on the work of Christ. And then it goes on to describe the glorious destiny of the people of God. And that's what we want to focus on today. What is our final destiny? What is God's eternal purpose for of glory for his people? Not this creation. This is the shadow of creation that comes before the real creation that will exist in the glory to come. And that is, that was Dad's hope. That's our hope, and that's what I want to focus on today. And it is the theme of this book of Romans, 
due to Christ's work and his delivering his people from sin and bearing God's wrath on their behalf, this is their glorious destiny. And starting in verse 15, Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And genuine assurance, assurance of salvation, assurance that we are in this family of God, can only be fully known by him to whom the Holy Spirit gives it. That is what Paul is saying here. The Spirit must enlighten us with the gospel, those realities, make, make it clear to our minds. And it's through the regeneration that comes from that Spirit that we become assured of salvation in Christ. And if you have that assurance, the Spirit bears witness in your soul of that. And Paul goes on starting in verse 17, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And of course this brings up the question of why the people of God suffer. That's one that's always asked anytime someone passes away who experienced a lot of suffering in their life prior to that point. And the measure of suffering appointed to each believer in Christ is different. Uh, and I'm not going to explain why the measure is different necessarily, but I do believe, in spite of all the doubting that exists about this, because generally the question always left, well, we just don't really know why people suffer. Well, I don't think that was Paul's perspective, because first and foremost, in his epistles, he describes his own sufferings. He describes those sufferings as greater than those of any other human being. Um, outside of Christ and is bearing our the wrath for our sins on the cross and and he explains the reason why he was appointed that and this is what we need to understand the sufferings of God's people I'm talking about God's people because that's the focus of this passage is not punishment that's the thing we need to understand first and foremost God does not send suffering in the lives of his people as punishment for their sins even those sins that they commit after believing on Christ, after being adopted into his family. There's a different reason for suffering for God's people. And Paul points this out clearly when, uh, when Ananias, when Paul was first converted there on the road to Damascus and God knocked him down and said, you're going to be my chief apostle, I've appointed you as my messenger to the Gentiles to proclaim my name among them. Uh, God said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now that great lot of suffering that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 11 12, it is a great lot that was given to him. I'm not going to go through all the details right now. It, it culminated in this 
thorn, whatever it was, that he experienced for the rest of his life. Uh, but, but it makes it clear why that suffering was punished. It was not his punishment for his past sins and persecuting the church of God. It wasn't even for sins that he might have committed after he became Christ's on the road to Damascus or became was given faith in Christ. He was Christ's in God's plan for eternity. Paul says the reason that this suffering was given to him, and, the, and this is the reason all saints are appointed any suffering, is because of the immense glory and revelation that he was shown. And the glorious light that, he, that was given to him. By him it was direct revelation. He was directly taken to the heaven where God's throne is and all of the angels are directed to do all of their work here on earth. We, can, we can't imagine what that would look like, but he was shown God's revelation directly. He even saw heaven itself. And he was given the gospel that he was proclaimed by revelation. And we may not have experienced that, but the light that is shown upon us is still that same glorious light shown upon him. And we've been given, blessed with gospel light that is far beyond what most of humanity ever is able to know. And uh, for that reason, Paul says, to keep me from being conceited lest I become conceited in my own wisdom, lest I be exalted. This, this treasure resides in, jar, in, my, in this jar of clay in order that the glory of this of God's grace that has been given to us and that we testify of, it may be seen that it is of God and not of us. Some of us might think, well, that's a strange reason why God would appoint suffering to his people. But that is what the scripture reveals is the reason for it. And for me, that makes it, puts it in perspective. I feel a lot better when I understand that when I am appointed suffering, that that is the reason God has appointed it to me, is to keep me from being conceited and exalting myself. I and all Christians have been given this great knowledge of God's truth and we have been given life that is privileged. And so, unless we be conceited and think we're some, something great over and above others because we've been given that and have such you know, great knowledge and, you know, like it's our own wisdom, unless we be conceited, he has appointed all saints their measure of suffering. But Paul then goes on to say that in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now what are these verses referring to? What glory is that? What is this final revelation of the sons of God? Well, we'll see as we read on what that final glory is. And this is the hope of all of us, what we look forward to and what Dad looked forward to. It's that final glory of the perfected saints 
with immortal bodies in a new and glorified earth that we shall receive as the culminating act of God's adoption of us as his sons and daughters. It does not refer to any preliminary glory that we experience either now or any heavenly time prior to that final new earth that God shall establish. Uh, glorification actually begins here and now when the Holy Spirit changes our lives to conform more and more to the image of Christ. That's the beginning of the glory that God has for us. Um, and that glory will increase when we enter Christ's presence. I know there's two views of that here, of what that time in heaven is prior to this new earth. But that is not even the final glory. The final glory will be the redemption of the sons of God in new, immortal, glorified bodies living in the new earth when God shall make his presence with men. When heaven comes to earth, and heaven becomes one with earth, and the entire creation is redeemed, Paul says as we go on. That is the final glory. And it's all due to the work of Christ. Paul says, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. And that's talking about this creation, the present shadow creation. The creation is preliminary, not the final creation. Uh, we can't, this creation, as wonderful as it is, I think this creation is still good, even in, in spite of all sin. This is still a wonderful creation that we have right now. But, and we all love it. We hate to leave it, uh, I think. You will all share that sentiment. And we fight hard not to leave it uh, in our souls. Not knowing really what is beyond uh, other than the testimony we have in God's revelation. But that dawns on our minds more and more as, as we meditate upon it. But we haven't experienced it yet, so it's hard to leave this, this wonderful place that we have lived in. That is so that manifests God's goodness in such a wonderful way to us. But that creation was subjected to futility, Paul says, not willingly. And we're talking about all aspects of creation that we see. Uh, all, not only even the sufferings of man because of uh, sin, but also the created order and the governments the corrupt governments of this world, everything like that, is, that's the result of this subjection to futility that Paul is talking about. He says the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we can only imagine what that will be. There will be some continuity with what we see now. You know, I, I believe that we'll all have some continuity of appearance to what we have now and that the creation is to come will bear some resemblance to what we have now, but it will be immensely different, immensely transcendent in comparison. And we can only, we can't really think that out and describe it in human terms what that will be. You know, all we know is it's a glory beyond anything we can imagine, and it will so far exceed this present creation that it's... Uh, hardly comprehensible, although we have a glimpse of it through a glass darkly in God's revelation. But the 
what is this creation that we set free from slavery that is uh, enabled gain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It is the bride of Christ. It is his people in a glorified earth. His people and their adornment, this new world that God shall create, which reflects his glory, which will be their the environment in which they live and enjoy God's presence and fellowship forever and eternity. Paul says, for we know that the whole creation grows and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And again, that's, that, that's when adoption is fully and finally realized, when we get that final redemption. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he already sees. But we hope for what we do not see. With perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And we know the history of the world has gone on for a long time since Christ's first return. And we don't know how much longer we've got until his final return. But we wait eagerly for that day, and we know that it will come with God's promise. There is no guesswork in that. The fact that God will finally end this world and bring about this new and glorious creation that we have talked about, we know that that is a certainty, that God has appointed a day in which that will occur, in which Christ will return from heaven and glorify fully and finally all of his saints and create their new world in which they will forever praise and glorify him and enjoy life as he will create it for us at that time. So this final glory is the real primary creation. It is that God, and God is destined this, we're going to see now in the next verse, God is destined this creation in eternity. And it's God's primary joy and ultimate purpose. God purposed from eternity to save a people from a rebellion and death. Through Christ's life, atoning death, resurrection, and work on our behalf. That wasn't a plan B, that was God's eternal purpose. To save a people from their sins and from eternal death through the work of Christ. Yet to this final creation, ultimate redemption, which is what we look forward to. This life is only a brief moment. It is a vapor that is gone in an instant. So Paul now goes on to describe our victory in Christ. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's not an intercession of atonement like in Christ when he finished his work for us, but that's an intercession on our behalf as an advocate before the throne of God because of our the weakness of our prayers and the fact that we're tainted with sin 
the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now, going on, we talk about God's purpose, and Paul is kind of getting to the final crescendo of his glorious message here as to, our, to, the, to the adoption and what its final results will be. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And again, this is talking about the people of God. This is not talking about everybody that's ever lived in the world. And we certainly can't say that all things work together for their good. They may all work together, but for the people of God, they all work together for their good. And now Paul goes on to describe God's eternal purpose for his people. For those whom he foreknew. What is that foreknew? It is not the mere prescience of God, just that he knows. Again, this is an adoptive term, according to Calvin and Jerome. Now, Jerome Chrysostom and Thergorod and many other ancient fathers in the Roman Catholic Church view this as just God, you know, God knows what's going to happen and affirms it. <coughs> but is that what Paul is focusing here on God's eternal purpose for redemption for his people? Is that the context? When the scriptures say that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world and that his people's name were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, is again an adoptive term. It's God's love for his people way in advance of they even being created. And his purpose to save them. Stuart prefers another meaning, and that which seems to also have, you know, first Peter 120 before danger says that Yonosko is for a new term. It means to will, to determine, to ordain, to decree. And he brings examples from Josephus, Plutarch, and Polybius. So, again, this is referring to God's eternal love for his people, and I'm going to go on through them, the rest of this uh, passage, that God makes all the links in history as a foreordained plan for his people. So those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I know there are different views here. Um, uh, there, there's one view that this is a declining population, that those whom he foreknew is everyone, you know, everyone in the world that he loved and purposed to save in Christ. And then those who were called is a little smaller group than that because not everyone hears the gospel. And so, uh, and then uh, those who be justified are a little smarter than that because, you know, as Christ said, many are called and fewer chosen. So that means that not everyone was called was justified, only those who uh, accept the calling and believe. And then those who are glorified, that's a little lower uh, population. Yet, that's those who uh, retain and maintain their justification to the end. So there is that view, the view of declining population is, is certainly not my view. Um, that was not Dad's view. He loved this passage 